Hi friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. I came across an article just a couple of minutes ago, and I'm just shooting totally from the hip here, but I want to share the the gist of what the article says. Now, as quite often is the case, the circumstances surrounding the release of this article and the story about this article are not as straightforward as we might want them to be. So let me give the backstory before I dive into what the article is about. Make sure I get all this right here. The article was written by Genevieve Briand, and she is the Assistant Program Director of the Applied Economics Master's Degree Program at Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins University. And she did some research where she looked at data around the U.S. death rate that she drew from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. And what she found was rather surprising. Now, the article was published in a student magazine, so it's edited by students. After it was published, there was quite a social media splash because of what people were were concluding from the article. As a result of that, the article was retracted and is no longer a part of the newsletter. What does that mean? Well, I'll go into a lot more detail here in a minute, but keep in mind that a, uh, an economist studied CDC data and came to some interesting conclusions. These conclusions were published, and then later Johns Hopkins decided that they needed to retract the information. So this is what the article said, and it was published on November 22nd. Um, according to the new data, the U.S. currently ranks first in total COVID-19 cases, new cases per day, and deaths. Genevieve Briand, Assistant Director for the Applied Economics Master's Degree Program at Hopkins, critically analyzed the effect of COVID-19 on U.S. deaths using data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in her webinar titled COVID-19 Deaths, A Look at U.S. Data. And these are her findings. She looked at causes of death in the United States. Now, several causes of death, and, and I'll read those later, but say it a dozen different ways that people normally would have died, and she compared those to previous years. And then she found that the increase in deaths for COVID-19 matched the decrease in these other areas for causes of death almost exactly. So what does that mean? That means based on the data that she was looking at, COVID-19 deaths were fully accounted for by other illnesses in previous years. And what that makes us wonder about is when there is a comorbidity, then was the COVID-19 cause of death on the death certificate the primary cause of death? Or was it the comorbidity, of course, that should have been the primary cause of death? Because in prior years, COVID-19 didn't exist and uh, the death rates were just as high for these comorbidities. The death rates went down for heart disease, cancer, chronic respiratory issues, uh, cerebrovascular issues, diabetes, flu, pneumonia, other respiratory issues, etc. The total decrease in April was 530 deaths less in 2020 than in previous years, and the increase which was COVID, was 486. Okay, she did the same study for the following week. The decrease in these types of deaths went down by 2,000, or the, the number of deaths went down by 2,540. The number of COVID deaths reported that week were 2,561. Then the next week, she did the same thing, and 
the death rate was down by 1,605, and the COVID death rates were up by 1,651. You see the pattern? So what's going on here? I'm not trying to say that COVID is fake. It isn't. COVID is a serious illness, and we need to take care of everybody, especially vulnerable populations. From the article, I'll just read what it says here. The CDC classified all deaths that are related to COVID-19 simply as COVID-19 deaths, even patients dying from other underlying diseases, but if they're infected with COVID-19, count as COVID-19 deaths. This is likely the main explanation as to why COVID-19 deaths drastically increased while deaths by all other diseases experienced a significant decrease. And the quote here is, all of this points to no evidence that COVID-19 created any excess deaths. Total death numbers are not above the normal death numbers. We found no evidence to the contrary, Brian concluded. Now, there's another dynamic that also happened, and you'll remember, because you were here, we've all lived through 2020. Do you remember when all across the nation, elective procedures and hospitals were banned? And that was to make sure that when we had this huge spike of COVID patients in hospitals, that there would be enough resources to take care of them, and so that people wouldn't be in the hospitals with COVID patients and uh, potentially spread the infection in the hospital that way. Well, Interestingly enough, this caused a lot of hospitals to lose a vast amount of revenue. And hospitals are very, very expensive places. They were going broke. Then the government realized hospitals needed help. So they offered to provide funding to hospitals for every COVID-related death that they reported. And a COVID-related death, by the way, didn't require that the patient who died have a positive COVID test. What was required was that the patient exhibited COVID-like symptoms. And included in the COVID-like symptoms were things like weakness and shortness of breath. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that most people, when they die, exhibit weakness and shortness of breath, which means that virtually anyone that dies in a hospital during this time period, you know, they were reported as COVID deaths. And we've been talking about this for a long time. I, I'm sure you've heard this theory before. What's different is that this author, Genevieve Briand, established that total deaths have not gone up and that the COVID-19-related deaths have probably been misinterpreted. And there's a bit more good news here. Briand continued to study deaths by age group. The, surprisingly, the deaths of older people stayed the same before and after COVID-19. Since COVID-19 mainly affects the elderly, ex experts expected an increase in the percentage of deaths in older age groups. However, this was not the case. The CDC data shows us that, in fact, the percentages of deaths among all the age groups remained relatively the same. And in quotes here, the reason we have a higher number of reported COVID-19 deaths among older individuals than younger individuals is simply because every day in the U.S., older individuals die in higher numbers than younger individuals. While COVID is real and COVID is dangerous 
and COVID is more dangerous for older people. More older people are not dying as a result of COVID-19 than died from other illnesses and other reasons in previous years. Let me say that again. Older people are not dying in greater numbers in 2020 because of COVID-19. They're dying at the same rate from all illnesses that they did in previous years. So this is really, really, really great news. It is helping us to begin to understand that while COVID is real and COVID is dangerous, it's not nearly as dangerous as we've been led to believe. And it's because of an over-exuberance in calling a death, a COVID-19 death when it occurs. So COVID may not be the killer that has been made out to be. So that's very cool. But before we celebrate too much, remember the article was retracted. What did they have to say about that? After the newsletter published this article on November 22nd, it was brought to our attention that our coverage of the Genevieve Brian's presentation has been used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. Used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. In other words, it's used to support inaccuracies. They did not claim the article was inaccurate, only that it was being used to support inaccuracies to minimize the impact of the pandemic. It goes on to say, we decided on November 26th, to retract this article to stop the spread of misinformation, as we explain on the social media. However, it is our responsibility as journalists to provide a historical record. We have chosen to take down the article from our website, but it is available here as a PDF file. So it still does list, live on if you want to uh, read it as a PDF file. In accordance with our standards for transparency, we are sharing with our readers how we came to this decision, etc., etc., etc. It goes on to say that Brienne's studies should not be used exclusively in understanding the impact of COVID-19, but should be taken in context with the countless other data published by Hopkins, the World Health Organization, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. going on here? You know, maybe you've heard the old saying that figures don't lie, but liars figure. I'm not calling anyone a liar here. What I am saying is that when you have a limited data set, you can pretty much prove anything you want statistically if you minimize the data set enough. Or if you expand the data set, you might be able to come up with a totally different interpretation of the numbers. And who's right and who's wrong? Well, we do know that the dynamic that was identified by Genevieve is real. What we don't know is the sum total of how big that impact really is. We know that it is there, and the retraction of the information also took place, which means that people were concerned about what this information might uh, make people think. Hmm. It would be really simple for someone to take one article like this and start quoting it and not look at the raw numbers behind it and start beating on the drum that this whole thing has just been a, a farce. But we know it's not a farce. Uh, COVID-19 is a serious illness, and people are dying from it, especially people with underlying health conditions, which is one of the things that they said in the retraction. The retraction more or less said, no, 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 it was right to call those COVID deaths because comorbidities make people very susceptible to death when they have COVID. So, hmm, I guess, you know, the retraction says... 
yeah, the, the people that would have died from heart disease that are called COVID deaths, they died from heart disease because of COVID and the heart disease. But I think that there's more going on here than just that. The main point of the article was that we've seen a reduction in other types of deaths and an increase in the COVID deaths that balance out to a net zero death rate for these illnesses, including COVID. I find that encouraging, and I, and I think that it's probably very accurate, but I don't think it's a universal statement about COVID. I do think that it does help to illustrate how the deaths from COVID numbers have been inflated. I think that uh, it's pretty clear that they have been substantially inflated, and we can come up with all sorts of ideas as to why they would be inflated. It, you know, a lot of these were just because it's very difficult to know what killed somebody. So they had COVID and they died, but they also had all these other illnesses. So you call it a COVID death, it gets marked as a COVID death. If you say, no, I think the dominant illness was actually heart disease or, or severe diabetes, then you wouldn't call it a COVID death. You would call it a heart disease death that also had COVID. But I, that distinction is not on the death certificates. So yeah, the water is a little bit muddy on this one. I would love to be able to say that Genevieve proved that COVID is not really killing more people than would have died otherwise, but it didn't really do that. She did find a correlation, though, between decreased deaths from other causes and increased deaths from COVID, and it does indicate, you know, that maybe COVID's not quite as bad as as we've been led to believe, and that's encouraging. Now, on the last show, I requested that people consider all sides of an issue, that they use their intelligence and do a little bit of research and try to sort out what they are choosing to believe. What is the narrative that is true? Since the beginning of newspapers, the beginning of minstrels that went from village to village, (laughs) information was embellished and and made more interesting to uh, attract more attention for the minstrel or to increase the uh, readership of the newspaper. And then it went to television and radio, or I should say radio than television, as the case may be, and then the internet. And there's a lot of pressure today for news to be reported faster and faster and faster and faster. And there's also, as a result of that, less fact-finding, truth-finding before these things are published. What does that mean? It means that we live in a media-rich, information-rich society. We have more information presented to us than in any generation before in the history of humanity. And the fast pace of that information, just that alone, means that it's less reliable. Now, I've heard the left claim that the right is trying to manipulate the narrative, and I've heard the right claim that the left is trying to manipulate the narrative, and I'm sure that that's going on on both sides. For any interest group. They try to manipulate the narrative to their advantage. I'm not here to to argue about that. I'm just trying to say there's a lot more than what we see in the media. We shouldn't take it at face value. We should carefully weigh and consider these events so that we can come to reasonable conclusions because it's guaranteed the media doesn't get it right all the time.
I have been doing a fair amount of research on the vaccines that are being developed. You know, it's it's a two-edged sword. As I mentioned in the last program, vaccines are not without consequence and they're not without risk. Um, I've done some more research and I want to just highlight this briefly. Do your research on these vaccines. And I use the term vaccine pretty darn loosely. And the reason I say that is this. I'm going to make this one distinction just to start your research, and then you can go search and and find out more information for yourself. But in the good old days of vaccines, what people would do was isolate the pathogen that was causing an illness. They would grow a whole bunch of it, usually in eggs or some other medium like that. Then they would do something to weaken or kill the viruses that were causing the illnesses. And then they would make a final solution that they would inject into people's tissues or bloodstream so that the uh, illness would manifest itself to the immune system of the person. And that person's immune system could learn to identify it and start to build antibodies to fight against it. And it was actually a false illness because the viruses that were injected were dead. They weren't gonna make anybody sick. Or at least they were weakened enough that they wouldn't likely make anybody sick. That's how our immune systems work. It takes a little while for the immune system to figure out what's a pathogen and what's not. And once something is identified as a pathogen, then that information is stored in the immune system so it can quickly access it and know what to fight, know who the enemy is, so to speak, in the body. Okay, that was a traditional vaccine. And in my world, that's what a vaccine always was. However, what is being developed to create immunity to SARS-CoV-2 is a little bit different. First, you should know that I have found 52 different vaccines that are being developed to fight against this coronavirus epidemic. 52. Many of them have taken very different approaches. Some of them are trying to do it in the old style of vaccines where they take the pathogen and grow a whole bunch of it and kill it and inject it into people. But there are many that are doing something completely different that's never been done with humans before. They're taking the sequence, the gene sequence, for the spike proteins that live on the outside of SARS-CoV-2 that allow the virus to attach and infect human cells. These spike proteins are what allow infection to happen. So they've taken the gene sequence that creates these spike proteins They have genetically manipulated other genes, and sometimes they use a a rather harmless virus that they manipulate genetically. Uh, Sometimes they wrap this genetic information using messenger RNA and and a different delivery mechanism using different types of lipid nanoparticles, and it it gets really, really deep. But suffice it to say, rather than growing a whole bunch of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses and killing them and making a vaccine out of those, They're actually taking this gene sequence and finding a way to inject it into the vaccine recipient. And then the gene sequence actually infects the recipient's very own healthy cells and hijacks those cells to create the spike proteins that are on the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So your body manufactures the spike proteins in mass, in a form, another infection, right? Because your cells are being infected to create these spike proteins. Now, the spike proteins alone are relatively harmless. They get into your bloodstream, into your body, and your immune system can find them, identify their shape, figure out that they are 
an invader, and then they know who the enemy is, and that builds immunity against the spike proteins that actually are on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They're claiming that the immunity success rate is uh, 94% or so, which is pretty high, especially when you consider that the efficacy of the flu vaccine often is below 50%. I didn't know if you knew that, but most of these flu vaccines only protect you at about a 50% level. They're claiming a 94% level. Now, the circumstances are extraordinary. These companies are requesting that the long-term studies to measure the efficacy and the side effects be waived so that they can put these um, vaccines into people much, much, much more quickly. So normally these studies would go from this phase three for maybe two years, tens and maybe even more than tens of thousands of people would be tested and, and they would watch these people over an extended period of time to see what any side effects may develop. They're asking that they forego that and just start vaccinating people quickly. Um, they are in the phase three of these evaluations and they're, they're hoping to make a quick decision based on a much smaller group of people and the tests that they've done. So where does that leave us? We're doing something that's never been done in mass with humans before, and I'm going to simplify it this way. It's genetic manipulation. It is using your own cells to generate spike proteins based on a gene sequence that was genetically inserted into some other vector. Let me see if I can simplify that even more. They are going to genetically manipulate your cells to create spike proteins. This is new, folks. This is not something that we know a lot about. And now they're in this crazy, crazy rush to implement it widespread among the population. So there's a lot more to it than that. And like I said, there are 52 different vaccines being developed. Not all of them use this technique. Many of them do. The more popular ones right now that are kind of leading the race to the vaccine seem to be using these techniques or something similar. I did not go into all the detail. I only tried to explain kind of how this works so that maybe it would make you want to go and look into it a little bit more. This is a big experiment. It's a very big experiment. This is new technology. This is not something that we have decades and decades and decades of experience with. This is brand new stuff. How do you feel about that? So I guess today's good news is COVID-19 is not nearly as deadly as we've been led to believe, even though they did retract the article that made that point. The less good news is that these vaccinations that are coming out are pretty experimental and buyer beware. Where does that leave us today? I put out several episodes more toward the beginning of weathering coronavirus that were directly about how to manage stress, how to manage fearful situations and the unknown, and how to have peace in the face of adversity, how to weather these times, weathering coronavirus. And today, I didn't do a whole lot of that, but I would encourage you, go back and, and look at the episodes that talk about how to manage fear and listen to those, because fear-based decisions don't help us much. They really don't. We don't need to be so strongly reactionary. 
Instead, we need to consider all the information. We need to come to wise and carefully considered decisions and conclusions about what we're going to believe from the various narratives that are out there. And we need to remember that no matter what happens, life can be rich and life can be good. What we really need right now more than anything else is to love on each other, to support each other, care for each other. And please remember that people do not have to agree about every subject to get along and to help each other. We don't have to agree with each other just to be neighborly or to be friendly, or to be family, or to support each other, or to look out for each other's best interests. Remember that disagreements often help us to come to a more precise, better truth. The people that disagree with you might have something that you could learn from. They came to their conclusions based on the information that they had at hand. Maybe that's information that you don't have yet, and maybe you have information that they don't have. So, you know, let's let's share a little bit of grace with each other. And remember, we do not have to agree, but we do need to support each other. And until the next show, please do go out there, show each other neighborly kindness and love and support, and know that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay.